Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past for the events that still haunt us today. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were history and the people who lived it and the paranormal meet. Now who doesn't love a good ghost story, right? Welcome back to Haunting History Podcast. I'm your host, Kat. Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, located in Western West Virginia, was constructed between the years of 1858 and 1881. It is the second largest hand-cut stone masonry building still standing in the world. The building was built in the Kirkbride Plan, which was a system of mental asylum designs by Thomas Story Kirkbride. His theory in healing the mentally ill relied on the environment, which he believed required the exposure of natural light and air circulation. All hospitals built in the Kirkbride plan would include a bat wing style floor plan, housing numerous wings that all jut out from a center area. Each connected wing would receive abundant light and fresh air. The 660 acre and 13 building property was designed to house 250 patients when it opened its doors in 1864. But by the 1950s, housed over 2,400 people in overcrowded and poor conditions. Changing its name over the years from Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum to West Virginia Hospital for the Insane to, in 1913, the Western State Hospital and ultimately back to Trans-Allegheny. Over the years, that property housed patients and criminals alike. Some of the reasons you would be admitted to a state hospital in the 19th century range from being kicked in the head by a horse, an opium habit, parents were cousins, religious enthusiasm, fits and desertion of a husband, all the way to novel reading and feebleness, feebleness of intellect. With a list like that, it's not surprising that within a few years, the hospital became overcrowded, with the staff being overwhelmed and outnumbered. Rooms designed to house one patient held four to five each. During the Western State Hospital years, the hospital became part of the lobotomy project, an effort led by the state of West Virginia and Dr. Walter Friedman to use lobotomies to reduce the number of patients in asylums. The procedure, often referred to as an ice pick lobotomy, left many patients completely altered, with many of them dying in the procedure. It's believed that over 20,000 deaths have occurred on the property, and it's no wonder why it's called the most haunted location in the world. Today, I'm speaking to Brandy Butcher, paranormal event manager of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Brandy, how'd I do? How was the history? Yeah, that was good. That was great. Nothing I was missing? No, no, you hit all the all the main points, all the key facts, as we call them, so. You know, I have a question. One of my first questions is, isn't it weird that it's 660 acres and 13 buildings? Like, the two most unluckier, creepiest numbers in the world, that's what it is. Now, it it is, that's um, kind of a urban legend, the acreage. Um, oh. It's it's close to 666 originally. Um, I can't remember the exact acre. I might have it right here. Um, but it's it was it, it was really close, but it was never actually 666. And we don't own that much of it still. Um, what we currently own is, I'm, I'm not sure how many acres, but the property or the facility that replaced us actually bought some of the land and some of it's on that property. So what made you get involved with the um, asylum? So I grew up um, fairly local to it. So as a kid, it was just always fascinating. My mom had friends over in Weston that we would go visit and we had to go right by the asylum to go to their house. And I mean, as a kid, that was basically like going by a castle, you know, when you would drive by that as a kid and with it being in operation until 1994, it was almost like a forbidden castle in a way, I guess you would say, because it was still open um, when, you know, a, a lot of us that are from around here were growing up. So um, it was, you, you know, you didn't go in there or anything, but the it was just such an amazing structure. So um, I've always been very interested in paranormal. It's West Virginia has so much history in general um, and so many neat, you know, just hidden little gems and secrets and things like that. And we have so much folklore and so many ghost stories. And I grew up on that stuff. There was, there's a couple books that are kind of the staple of growing up paranormal in West Virginia. 
And these are the books that in the school library, everybody was on a wait list to get these books. Um, and that's kind of what got me started in just interest in the paranormal in general. So when they were looking for tour guides, um, I had just stepped away from a full-time job, was looking for something, you know, a little more, you know, I could spend more time at home, but something I really enjoyed and, you know, could share with other people. So I applied for a paranormal tour guide position and they brought me in for training. I made it through training and certified as a tour guide. And I have been there ever since it's been 10 years now. And now, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm the paranormal event manager. So and tell what do you do? Okay, so you're the event manager. Do you still do investigations there? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I um I like to go out on the floors with my guides in their groups, you know, when I can check on them, make sure they're having a good time. Sometimes if it, you know, if it's an area that is one of my favorite ones, I'll ask, you know, is it all right if I kind of sit in on this session with you and things like that. And I also like to go over, you know, we have our employee investigations as well, where some of us will go over and kind of have that time and, you know, get to explore a little bit and see if we can find out any kind of new secrets that maybe the asylum has been hiding that we can share with with our guests when they come. Do you know the story of Lily? Is that one of the the, the places or? Yeah, that's probably one of our most most popular, most well-known rooms. Um, it's definitely the one that most people come in having heard of. Um, so, you know, a lot of people will consider her our most famous spirit of the building. Um, What's the story and- on her? I only saw the name. I didn't hear the story. Yes. Um, Lily was one of the first spirits that were encountered in the building when they first opened up for tours. And at that time, that the main building was the only one that was well enough to use for tours and the haunted house, things like that, because the um, the outside elements did take a toll on the properties over the years, the, the few years it sat vacant before the Jordans saved it. And um, so they were running everything in that main building and including the haunted house at that time, which now we use a separate building for. And we had an actor that was in one of the rooms. Her job was to do jump scares, come out of that room, you know, kind of, spook the people out that were walking through and then go back into her room for the next group. And when she had went back into her room um, after one of the groups went through, she noticed that there was a little girl in there and she claimed that the little girl was crying and asking for her mommy. So the actor had went out into the hallway, looked around for the group. It had already moved on through. There didn't seem to be any adults looking, you know, missing a child or anything like that. And when the actor went back into the room, and went to find the little girl to say, hey, come with me, you know, take them to, you know, the the manager and, you know, get it all sorted out. The little girl was gone. Um, when she has been reported, when there are reported sightings of Lily, she is most frequently seen um, in a long white dress. She has long, dark hair and is around eight to 10 years old, somewhere in that age range. Has anyone ever confirmed that Lily was a patient there? No, we do not have any historical documents on a child named Lily, but there were so many patients in the facility throughout the years that, you know, it's it's possible there there probably were was a Lily there at some time. Um, We just haven't, you know, found that specific piece of history yet to document it. But at the same time. You know, the spirits, they don't have to tell us the truth necessarily. And that's something, you know, that I like to kind of, you know, explain to our guests that, you know, maybe this little girl in life, maybe her favorite flower was a lily. And at this point, that's what she would like to call herself. So that doesn't mean, you know, that it maybe wasn't a child, you know, of the asylum that passed away there, maybe was even born there and passed away there. Um, But, you know, there's no, you know, just because we can't document Lily as a former patient definitely doesn't mean that Lily, you know, isn't there. So were there babies born at the asylum? Yes. Yes. What point were babies being born there? Um, just kind of randomly through the years, basically, you know, there were, there were patient, patient relationships that, you know, weren't that one of the most, common things in all the years of operation of the asylum was overcrowding and understaffing. Uh, So it made it very difficult for, you know, being so overcrowded for staff to kind of keep an eye on everybody. And that's a lot of the reason that it got so bad towards the end. 
Um, it wasn't necessarily that every staff member in that place was just trying to neglect and didn't care about the people. That definitely was not it at all. But it was overwhelming. It, there were so many patients to tend to and to take care of and, you know, try to help give them what they needed that, you know, you were going to have patients that that got together inappropriately. And the result of that, you know, sometimes was a child of the asylum. Well, then what would happen to that child? Do you know? Um, depending on the year, it, if it was born there, um, depending on if there were there were patients that were, you know, a little more capable of perform, performing everyday duties and things like that than others, depending on you know, what ward you were housed on and what your mental capacity was. So they had a lot of patients that helped by doing chores, um, especially in the very, very early years. The asylum was self-sustained. They had bakeries, dairy farms, coal mines, everything that they needed to run the facility with little to no cost from the state was right there on the property, including able-bodied patients you know, helping work in the greenhouses and in the fields and things like that. Um, so there would have been a nursery or, uh, and that's where there would have been nurses overseen, but patients that were capable would have assisted with taking care of children as well. What are some of your other favorite areas of the hospital? I, I really like the children's ward in general. It's a Lily's room is actually down on the first floor and the children's ward is not. Um, but that doesn't mean, you know, they don't have to stay in one place. So um, but in the children's ward, we actually have another spirit that we speak speak to. And um, her name is Emily. I really enjoy going in there and communicating with Emily. Um, she likes ponies and horses. And I have a horse and I like to relate to it, to the spirits of the asylum. And that's a good way to build those relationships and get them to trust you enough to want to communicate on a regular basis is to build relationships with them, try and understand them in ways that, you know, one of the biggest things where these people were seriously misunderstood. Some of them may not have known what landed them there. And especially in the very, very early years um, before, you know, we knew even a fraction of what we do about mental illness. Now you could be, you know, you write off some of the reasons for admission and they're bizarre. Some of them are, you know, just you sit there and question, what could that even possibly mean? So, so yeah, it's, there's such a variety of spirits in the building. Um, and I, I personally, like I said, I like to try and relate to them and it definitely gets you much better activity by, you know, being sitting down and saying, Hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry about what you went through. Is there anything, you know, you, you, I can help you with, you know, things like that. So and a lot of the time, they just like someone to talk to, maybe leave them a cigarette, things like that. And it really yeah, gets good Go, You have to elaborate on that. You leave a cigarette and then you come back and it's not there anymore? No, no, it's still there. Um, it's still there. Um, unless, you know, something like so every now and then, you know, a critter will get in, which with large buildings like this, that's, you know, that happens sometimes. But right. um, maybe a raccoon will, you know, move a cigarette or something. Or we do clean our maintenance guys. Um, we have a phenomenal maintenance team that not only do all does all the upkeep for the asylum itself, they keep our clock tower beautiful, which is obviously, you know, a kind of a, a you know, important job. The clock tower is, you know, our iconic symbol of the asylum. And we have a phenomenal maintenance team that does all the recreation for the molding and keeps it as beautiful as it is. So they also go through and will clean up, you know, cigarettes that have been there a while, maybe look gross, candy so that we don't bring in bugs and insects, things like that. But cigarettes and coins are very popular trigger objects and um, they entice the spirits a little bit and it helps keep our asylum clean because it doesn't really attract rodents. So those are the two most common kind of gifts that get left. Um, and then in the children's ward and Lily's room, there are a lot of toys. A lot of people will bring in, um, like a, we, the guests we had last night had brought in a toy ball and a little puppy dog and stuff like that for the children of the asylum. So to use trigger, trigger objects often. Yes. Yes. So tell us about another, um, the scariest day I, what I've seems to be the general consensus is the fourth floor is the scariest though part of it half okay. of it the fourth floor is definitely considered the most active and that would definitely be where i consider my favorite overall location um like i said i enjoy children's ward 
I like Ward 2, I like Ward E, but if you're going to ask me to like pick, if I could only pick one spot in the building, it's going to be on the fourth floor for sure. Um, and yeah, most likely over on the south end with Wards T and V. Those are the most popular, generally the most active. Um, not every time because, you know, they don't perform on command. But if you go up there and have the patience and take the time to sit down and get to know them a little bit, you can have some really phenomenal sessions up there. And um, it definitely, like I said, gets very active. The south side, um, that's where a lot of people go and have really fun, comfortable sessions. They don't get kind of too uneasy feeling. Now, the other side of the fourth floor, um, which is Ward R, it, it you know, I, I kind of call it the rated R ward because it has caused a lot of people to, you know, use some foul language with, you know, getting scared up there. They're, it can get a very heavy feeling. Um, I think that is a seriously misunderstood spirit there. He is just a very recluse type guy. He doesn't like a lot of social activity. I get along well with Ward R um, as well as a few of my other guides, but some of my other guides won't walk down Ward R, you know, like with the light off type thing um, and have been made sick up there, um, felt like maybe they were dizzy going to pass out and things like that. So it's a very fickle ward. But if you can get that guy to warm up to you, he's actually a, a really cool spirit to talk to. Um, he's just a very private spirit. So he would prefer to scare people out than take the time to get you get to know you so who do you think that is do you think is there someone in particular um i have no idea we i've been there 10 years now i've never gotten a name out of that ward in any of my sessions i have seen um a lot of shadow shadow play we can often see him rocking back and forth in the window it's at the end of that ward if we're standing at the beginning of it and just watch the circular window you will see part of it black out and it's a shadow figure kind of rocking back and forth. Um, there was a day um, a few years back that I had been there for the, through the night for an investigation and I was going to give the daytime paranormal tours the next day. And we run um, fans in the daytime so that it helps keep guests and guides from getting overheated because it gets very warm in there this time of year, especially. So it was probably about this time of year, a few years back and we had turned the fans off for the investigation. Cause obviously that contaminates a lot of, you know, audio and things like that. You can't hear as well. And when I was walking through the building to turn them back on before we started our daytime tours, when I came up the side stairs for that ward and started to walk towards the end where I believe his room is, his door just slowly closed itself. And I, I couldn't help but kind of laugh. And I was like, man, I know you're so tired of me. I've been here all night. I don't even come over here on my daytime paranormal tour. So you can leave your door closed. I'm going to turn this fan on and I'm out. I won't bother you the rest of the day. And, you know, I just, I respected him in that way. There were, there was no breeze. The fans were not on. There was absolutely no way that that door should have just closed itself like it did. And I, I just kind of picked up on it as him saying, I'm done with you. Um, you know, I, I, we hung out last night, leave me alone. And I, so I just said out loud, you know, I, we walk the halls and talk to ourselves or, you know, our, our spirit friends. So anybody else from the outside might've been like, who is she talking to? But I, I took that as a sign. And, you know, I told him, I said, man, I totally understand. I'm not even going to bother you today. I'm just going to turn this fan on and I'm going to get out of here. And, and I think that's another reason I get along so well with him is I respect his space. So. And you have no idea who that could be at all? No idea. What, I guess my question would be, what records survived from over the last hundred years? Well, we have anything, what did survive and that we are legally allowed to have access to, most of it is in our museum rooms and you can access, uh, excuse me, access those with, um, you can come in and take a tour, which gives you access to all the museum rooms, or you can get just the museum room pass um, and just explore those without taking a tour. And that allows you to sit down and go through a lot of our records. Now there are, you know, privacy laws and everything like that, because we were in operation until 1994. So there are many, many years of records that we legally can't have access to. Okay. However, um, we do know that the fourth floor um, where it had a few different uses, and that's also common for the asylum itself. There, I don't think there's a single ward that didn't have a different use at one time or another. Um, 
what was one at one time the geriatrics ward was also the criminally insane ward at a different time. So right. things changed a lot. And at one time, originally the fourth floor was meant for staff housing. And we're talking prior to automobiles being affordable, fa- staff and their family would have lived on the property at the asylum on the fourth floor. The interesting thing about the fourth floor is it doesn't have the same layout as the lower floors for that reason. So there are no day rooms on the fourth floor. The ceilings in the rooms are slanted like the roof. It's it's a really fascinating um, architectural structure on the fourth floor. And then after, you know, staff weren't required to live there or weren't living there anymore, when they transitioned them to patient wards, they were used as detox and um, alcoholic, like drug and alcoholic rehab dry out wards. So, um, and then at one time, even way, way after that, when it wasn't being used for patients at all, they stored records and things like that up there. So, um, you know, there even would have been technically staff up there again, but just maybe to store records. But there's definitely, like I said, so many different aspects that go into the asylum that it's really difficult to pinpoint, you know, what maybe any one particular spirit who tries to remain private like this particular one does um, when he won't really give us anything to go on. It's really hard to determine who he might be. He could be a patient. He could have been a staff member. Um, You know, he really, he really, he values his privacy. He doesn't let us in on a whole lot. We have got disembodied voices from him. Um, Myself and a guide had a very deep male breath right between us. I mean, we were maybe standing three feet apart and right in that, you know, right in the middle of us. And the the people we were with heard it as well. And I mean, it was neither of us. Um, Like I said, we've seen the shadow figures. We've heard the footsteps and the running up there. It's a very interesting ward if you kind of take the time and try and get to know him and just be respectful. Like I said, it goes a long way for sure. And that's with the building in general. Um, Investigating the asylum is, and any asylum for that matter, is extremely different, different than going into a prison or, you know, a a place that housed a different community of people. You know, these were patients. These were not necessarily all prisoners. Yes, there were violent wards that housed, you know, the violent women, the violent men, the criminally insane. So, yes, technically there were prisoners there, but this wasn't meant to be a prison. So you have to go in with a completely different investigation style with respect. You know, some of these people, even if they did commit a crime, they may not have known that was wrong. So you can't really compare some of the spirits at, you know, our asylum to a very famous prison. So right. it's it definitely a, a, you, you go in with a completely different mindset. If you, in my opinion, if you want to have a really good investigation in anything that was a former, you know, hospital that was supposed to be there to care for people that, you know, probably didn't deserve a lot of the, you know, horrible treatment and things like that, that they were exposed to. Right. Is the fourth floor also where the murder of, I think his name was Dean. No, that was on the third floor, actually. Um, and that was in the violent men's ward. One of the wards I just mentioned there where, like I said, we, we had, we had violent, you know, we had murderers. We had, we had bad people in there for sure. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's not for us to determine whether they knew, you know, mentally whether that was right or wrong. But right. yes, um, Dean was um, he was the victim in what we call the uh, the bedpost murder room. And as we I've mentioned, you know, before, urban legends tend to grow over the years. Originally, the story that we were told was that he had been impaled with the bedpost, and that's why it was referred to that or as that. But um, he was. We did find out that he was you know, bludgeoned to death. He was hung the way it, you know, we were always told, but he basically, unfortunately drowned on his own blood is how he passed away. And the two, um, aggressors in that, um, yeah, they were violent male patients that they picked an easy victim and took advantage of it. And, you know, whether, like I said, I, I don't know whether they should have been maybe in a prison instead of an asylum. You know, I'm not, I'm not one to determine that because I wasn't there and I, I'm not a mental health doctor. How was it determined that a, someone who was considered a criminal, how was it determined that they would go to trans Allegheny or even when it changed to Western state hospital, what was the determining factor for them to go there as opposed to a prison? 
I'm, I cannot be 100% sure on my, so I'm going to give kind of a vague answer to this because that would be something better suited for one of my historians. Um, and like I said, I, I do specialize in the paranormal, but I basically believe it would have been mental capacity and, you know, after a trial and evaluation, you know, kind of similar, I'm sure not as in-depth and obviously, like I said, we don't know as much about mental health now, but I'm, I'm sure there would have been an investigation and then it would have depended on the, you know, mental capacity of that patient and whether they were declared insane or not. That makes sense. Rather than going to a prison, they would go somewhere where they could be quote unquote treated. Right, right. And um, both of those, those two men that committed that murder they both spent the rest of their life in prison, correct? No, um, they actually were both transferred to the new facility when it was built and spent the remainder of their lives there. At a, another hospital that was the same as this one? Yes. yes. And Dean, the one that they murdered, he did have a, a diminished capacity. He was yeah. more, but he, what I read is that he was more childlike, but he did have violent tendencies. And that's why he was even in the same section as they were. Correct. That is correct. Have you ever tried to get in touch with him or do you think any of them are there? Um, oh, yeah, we do communicate with Dean. Um, a lot of people do. Um, they'll bring he, he's one of them that people will bring gifts to as well. So he's got like a couple little stuffed animals and things like that in that room. And um, he likes to play games. He's it, a lot of the spirits if you don't ask about the traumatic incident you know like that particular incident then you can get them to kind of communicate a little bit better because some of them especially dean don't want to you know they don't want to go through that again so um a lot of the time people will go in and you know just say hey dean i'm sorry you know for what happened you know we're here to talk to you and things like that and um that people will go in rooms and sit and offer to play cards, play poker or something like that. And, you know, shuffle the cards, deal out a couple hands. And yeah. And a lot of the times that's the type of stuff they like, as opposed to just bringing up the traumatic incident itself. Um, so yeah, we do, we communicate with Dean fairly frequently and we get some really neat activity in that room. What's your next favorite place in the hospital? Besides, besides the fourth floor, I really, I really enjoy ward E um, on the second floor. And I think that's partly because a lot of people, when you, when we tell them, you know, what wards they're in when we're given a tour and they hear, well, this is female admissions and this was male admissions. They, you know, for obvious reasons, they want to go more towards either the violent men, violent men, women's, um, you know, fourth floor, children's ward, even civil war section. And they kind of forget about the admissions wards because they, I guess they, just don't think, you know, oh, it's just admissions is what they think. I have had some of my absolute best stuff in Ward E in, in the men's admissions ward. I've had a very heavy door open and slam in front of an entire group of people. So that was a really cool one because I had witnesses and that was in the middle of a daytime tour. Um, we have had a, some help me EVPs out of there from a man. We have had um, shadow figures come out of the rooms, come up behind some of the guides and, you know, the guests see them. And then next thing you know, they're gone. It's, it's really a kind of an underrated ward because people count it out. So I, I really, really love Ward E is probably, you know, one of my other really favorite locations to investigate. When you say admissions, that's where people would go through first when they first came into the system. Correct. Correct. They would have been, you know, placed in general admissions, um, men, well, men or women, depending on, you know, their sex. And then they would have been evaluated from there. And then staff would have decided what ward best suited them. Um, if, you know, if that it was a violent male that they, you know, were going to have to worry about being aggressive or, you know, depending on age or if it was juvenile men's or, you know, yeah, they would evaluate them and see what ward suited that patient best. And then, you know, moved on to a more, you know, their own room in another, well, not their own room, but a room in another ward, depending on the years. Well, you would think admissions would be a highly active place because if you're being sentenced somewhere or you're being sent some set either sentenced for the criminally insane or sent there because of a diminished mental capacity for whatever reason, you're, t you must be terrified. So I would think that if there's such a thing as a building taken on an imprint, that would be one of the highest places that would have 
sort of that imprint, that energy of being frightened, of being scared of you don't know what's going to happen next kind of thing. It doesn't, it doesn't really surprise me that the admission section would be highly active. Yes. Keys are a very popular trigger object there. If someone has their, their car keys or their, you know, just their keys hooked to their belt loop. And I have felt, um, I've felt tugs on my lanyard that my keys are on when they're in my pocket when walking through there before. And if you think about it, you know, if this is someone that doesn't believe that they should be being brought into this place and want to escape, you know, if they could get a hold of a set of staff members keys, they might've been able to get out of there. So it doesn't surprise me that keys are such a, you know, such a well-used object over there. Cause like I said, a lot of people will feel their keys being tugged on. And I myself have had that happen when I have my, you know, my actual asylum keys in my pocket and my lanyards hanging out. And, you know, I've, I've felt something tug on it walking through those wards before. So why was the ward I remember? Well, first my other question is out of the, the paranormal activity there, how much of it do you believe is residual and how much of it do you believe is inten in intelligent hauntings? Oh, that is a tough question. Um, and I, I was even just discussing this last night um, with our guests. And I mm, I would almost, I want to say maybe 50-50. Really? Um, yeah, because we do have, and I, as I was recommending to them, um, I usually tell people, and, and I usually hope that it doesn't, make me look and sound like a fool, but, but myself and the asylum, we're real good friends. So it's all in fun, you know, if they do make me look that way, but I definitely believe that the fourth floor is probably the most intelligent, um, of the building, especially over in wards T and V. I have had sessions up there where I was trying to throw the session off because I was the equipment. I just thought, no, this isn't, you know, it's too coincidental, basically, and kind of said, well, if, you know, turn at this other caller, if this is really you, because I think this equipment's just malfunctioning because you're not using any other caller or depending on the, you know, piece of equipment. And sure enough, as soon as I do it, they will hit that other caller or hit that rim pod or whatever we ask. And I mean, it's that they're intelligent <laughs> for sure up, up there. But we do have a lot of areas that just have that, like you said, that residual haunting um the daytime staff will often say that sometimes when they're opening up or locking up at the beginning and end of the day especially if it's near what would be like breakfast or dinner times they will sometimes hear what sounds like a massive you know a massive group of people like shuffling down the ward almost as if they were kind of you know going to breakfast call or dinner call so we've had people say that they have heard a dinner bell ring over there so you know we definitely have a lot of residual stuff as well well you would think of building that is filled with that much tragedy fear mental illness all that stuff like how would the energy not somehow be trapped there Do you, especially that was the island too the building is made out of sandstone blocks right yes and sandstone contains quartz. So, so a lot of people in the paranormal realm believe that quartz holds on to what's happening around it. So like that, for that building to have an imprint, it doesn't, doesn't seem that far-fetched. If you believe in the paranormal or you are interested in researching the paranormal and what's being done now and what people are figuring out, that building alone basically is built for to withhold energies. Yes, the stone tape theory. Yep, the stone tape theory. And it just has recorded over all of these years, um, even still currently. It still records today, especially uh, they, they love to mimic staff members, current staff members. I have been heard when I'm not there. My assistant manager has been seen when she isn't there. Our daytime Ooh, staff that's a doppelganger thing, though. Yes, yes. Okay, tell me about that. That To me, doppelgangers are the scariest thing I've ever heard in my life. And, and we, we hear that a lot. And that's what, and somebody asked me one other time, they said, don't you die if you see your doppelganger? And I said, well, I've not seen mine, so um, I, I can't attest to that. But um, but it's the, the asylum has a very different personality, I've learned. Um, and as, as scary as I think a doppelganger would be, anywhere else for like me or some of my staff, 
I think the reason it doesn't shake us too much is because, you know, it's it's almost like a rite of passage in a way. When someone says, oh, I heard you and you weren't here last night or yesterday, we're like, oh, OK, I'm 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 finally a part of the building. Um, well, he's like, you finally left your own imprint. Yes. Yes. Okay. So to you guys, it's kind of flattering. Yes. Yes. Depending on um, now, like when I've heard um, years ago when I was still a guide, I heard my manager coming up the stairs. It was odd because he had just had surgery. So he was and typically the manager stays in the break room to, you know, for security reasons, make sure nobody's trying to get on the property while the guide and the are, you know, hosting the guests. And um, it made no sense to me on why not only when he wasn't feeling well because he just had surgery, but, you know, why he was coming all the way to the fourth floor um, is where we were. And my guests heard him as well. And we paused the session and said, well, hold, I was like, hold on a second. I don't know what he could need and that he wouldn't just, you know, message me or something. And we waited. He never showed up. I checked the stairs. We heard him coming from. Nobody was there. And when we went back downstairs and I was like, I heard you. What did you need? What, you know, do you change your mind or what? And he's like, I haven't left this break room. I have heard entire tours going through. And so have other other staff members. And you're and I've messaged and said, Hey, where's so-and-so and what tour are they on right now? Cause I hear them coming up, up these stairs where I'm at and they'll say, no, he's on a, a CI tour in a completely different building. So, so yeah, they, they like to kind of play with us in a way I think as well. So, and we've had some that, um, usually if anybody that has seen them has said, if they see one of us, it's us, but it's distorted in a way like the facial features are distorted to where they've all said i never want to see it again <laughs> but nothing traumatic or anything like that necessarily happened after you know they encountered it besides they were just like that was super creepy and i don't want to do that again <laughs> so so to you so like it's sort of uh, like a form of acceptance like the buildings accepted you yeah like, yeah um, if someone hears your voice or God forbid sees you because that would just freak me out. But like, here's your voice or something like that. Someone walking up the stairs. It's sort of an acceptance from the building. But that would actually go back to the whole quartz and the sandstone thing. Because that's not even re residual. And it's obviously not a hunting because you're all still alive. But it's mm -hmm. sort of the right. building taking on an imprint or recording of what's going on there. Yes, that, that's why I said it's still recording to this day. <laughs> that's crazy. Okay, and then one of the other stories I wanted to touch on was the nurse. There was a story of a nurse who committed suicide. There I'm were sorry. so many. I don't want to say so many nurses, but there were so many deaths and suicides. I'm trying to think of which particular one. Do you have a specific name? Because um, there were a few staff deaths. I'm trying to think. That might be a historic. I may not be familiar with that particular one. Oh well, I mean, it could have come from anywhere because there's so many different stories out there. But I thought there was one about a nurse. Maybe it was even a patient that had hung herself in one of the rooms. Okay, now we did have we have a um, we have a room where two patients were found hanging. That oh, how did that happen? It's unknown for sure. Now we re do refer to it. As as the double suicide room. Um, so I wonder if maybe that's the one that, and then it just, you know, things, you know, there's, there's so much to remember. It's easy for stories to get crossed, especially when you haven't, you know, when you've visited once or twice, there's so much information to retain. But yeah. The staff went in that room one day and found both patients hanging from their, with, by their bed sheets um, and had both, you know, taken, it's believed that they took their own lives. There were never any kind of issues between these two, these two patients for them to think that it was a murder suicide or anything like that. So it is believed that it was a double suicide. Um, there wasn't any reason to think there was foul play or anything like that. Is there activity in that room? Oh yeah. Um, one of the main things that will happen in there is activity or, um, equipment will, the batteries will drain rapidly fast. Um, and a lot of the time after that, or, Around the time, like if you're, you know, noticing your battery, you know, dropping quickly, you will start hearing things out in that hallway or even um, seeing shadow play out there as well. And directly across from that room or almost directly across from it in that same hallway, um, we have what we refer to as the stabbing bathroom. 
And there were two patients in there that did have a disagreement. Um, one of them did attack the other and stabbed him multiple times. He escaped the room, but he had already been you know, injured to the point to where he did bleed out and led to death before he could get assistance, make it to the nurse's station. That room is extremely active. That's probably if I was to pick one room instead of, you know, a ward or a floor, that would be the room. We speak to two spirits in there. They actually don't like that's one of the major places where if you bring up the incident, they're most likely not going to talk to you. So I don't know if maybe these two spirits aren't the same ones that were involved in that, you know, maybe for whatever reason, they just like hanging out in this area. But there, I've had them knock my flashlight off the windowsill. A lot of people get touched in there. They will feel, um, especially girls, will feel someone like touching the back of their neck. We have got a lot of EVPs out of there, especially ones, um, one of my favorite ones, because they like cigars. And that's one of the things that I like to bring them. And a lot, other people do as well, because we found out that as opposed to cigarettes, they kind of prefer cigars, um, but they'll take either. And a young girl had captured an EVP while we were in there, that was a deep man's voice going, mmm, a cigar. And I had just put a cigar down just a few minutes prior to that. So that's one of my favorite EVPs that have come out of that room. And she was, she couldn't make it out at first. And when she played it for me, and I said, I'll tell you, I know exactly what it says. And then when she replayed it, and I said, she said, oh, you're right. And I said, yeah, he said, mmm, a cigar. So um, I, I really like that room. As long as you don't bring up the incident, that's a really, really active, um, intelligent room as well. So. Interesting. My next question was going to be, what is your favorite EVP you've ever captured there? It, it was probably that one, to be honest. Well, no, I take that back. Um, just recently, we were in an area that doesn't I don't get to explore very much. And it was myself and two other guides. And it well, it wasn't that wasn't an EVP, though. I mean, we captured it on audio, but it was actually disembodied. Um, so yeah, I guess that's technically not it, not an EVP. So you but actually it heard was, it when it happened. Yes, yes, okay. and it, and we are all three seasoned, um, seasoned veteran guides and staff members, investigators of the asylum, and um, we, it's something that we even have to edit out because it scared all of us to the point to where you know I was like, what the is that? And then my and the the male guide that was with us. And the, uh, the other girl that was with us, she even said, she said, I've never heard him say turn a flashlight on before. But it was that loud and that just it, it was bone chilling. And so just right behind us, it was right. And there was nothing but a wall behind us. What was it? What, what did the voice say? It was just a very deep. I, we still can't decide if it was like a moan or it was just like. Ugh, like it I don't know it's it was so deep and so loud um like I said my reaction was what was that and he was like turn that flashlight on um because it it was just it shook all of us it was the loudest most distinct thing I think any of us have ever heard and even like I said the other my other guy that was with us she said I've never heard him ask for a flashlight to be turned on and I mean yeah that like we're, we're pretty thick-skinned investigators, the, the three of us that were there specifically. Um, so for it to have, I mean, shaken us like it did, it, that, it, was, it was quite intriguing. So, I mean, that, that's the type of stuff that, like, that's why I've been there 10 years. Um, it's, it's never the same night twice. You know, some are a little more quiet than others. It's like I said, we can't, we can't make them communicate with us. But by building a relationship with the building, it definitely you know, helps them to kind of want to, that's why we are there to help our guests get this activity. You know, that's why we've got our guides that help navigate people through there. And, you know, sometimes having somebody the building's familiar with helps them to get that activity. So. And tell me about the, you guys have, you have year round paranormal investigations, right? Yes. We will go all the way um, up until November. Uh, we take or we get one week, we'll take one weekend off right before all of our um, October festivities start, um, all of our flashlight tours, fall fest, haunted house, um, everything that, you know, we do for those seven weeks where we, you know, bring in mass amounts of people. And then um, myself and my staff will take the, the weekend after that off just to kind of 
you know, regroup and breathe, spend a weekend with our families, and then we will come right back at it. And we are hosting every weekend, um, basically, except for Thanksgiving weekend, so we can be with our families. And then that one that one weekend, so we can have a break and Christmas and New Year's. Otherwise, um, all of our dates are on our websites. I definitely recommend, you know, booking in advance. We sell out really quickly, and we do cap out. Um, our public investigations so that it doesn't get overcrowded because if you get too many people in a building that contaminates evidence and you know we're there to help people kind of you know either whether they're professional or they're just getting started and kind of wanting to to you know dabble in the paranormal and if if you're just getting your feet wet come in and do a two-hour tour if you're nervous about doing an eight-hour hunt first come do our, our two-hour nighttime tour that lets you get used to the, you know, the lighting, kind of, you know, get a feel for the building. And, and if you enjoy it, come back and have the eight-hour hunt with us. And we're going to, you know, get you, help you get through the night, make you as comfortable as possible, stay with you if you're nervous and scared. And if you, you know, you get comfortable and kind of want to investigate your ward by yourself, that the guide will step back and let you get that feel for it. So we're, we're there to, you know, make the experience, you know, everything it can be for our guests. See, I'm not much of an investigator. I don't, I don't particularly enjoy doing ghost investigations. I'm more about the history and the research. But you know, I love a good ghost story. I, if I was close to West Virginia, I don't know if I could turn that down. I think I'd have to do it. I tend to rationalize things, so I don't know if I would be terrified or if I would be the opposite of terrified. Do you know what I mean? It's such an imposing building. When you look at photos of the building or videos of the building. It's so imposing and so big and I don't know, you can almost feel it looking at it, that it was filled with all kinds of energies. Absolutely. And, and I've never had a guest come in for their first time, even after seeing it on all the shows and seeing all the pictures and not be wowed, um, not said Oh man, I cannot. This is so much bigger than it even looked on TV. Um, and and yeah, like you said, the the general structure itself is so imposing. And then when you dive into the history of it, because you know it also played a big part in the Civil War. Um, you know, it was it was it was Virginia's asylum prior because we weren't a state yet. So um, you you would really enjoy all that. And definitely if you're ever in West Virginia, especially in, you know, the warm seasons when we're running our, our historic stuff, you should absolutely come and see us. I think you'd really love um, love all the historic information and then jump on one of the two hour nighttime tours. So then you get the ghost stories, but you don't have to sit for the investigations. Yeah, see, that would be a lot for me. But I don't know. I might be inclined to do it just to get an EVP. I always hear the EVPs people get there are insane. And that yes. was kind of amazing. Thank you so much for doing this with me. Busy, busy time of year. Um, I'm curious, how much busier do you get through October than you do, like, say, June? Oh, we go non nonstop. <laughs> um, now it it varies. Um, we've this summer I've I've hosted a lot of private investigations, and we love that. We love when you know these professional private teams and these big you know these groups want to come in and you know investigate the whole building on their own they have some awesome nights so we've been busy in that aspect um so uh, we will have about the same amount of nights going per week only we're going to times that by two so we're going to run double hunts um double ghost hunts every friday and saturday night we're going to run our two-hour tours on thursdays we're going to um, run flashlight tours the haunted house um we're going to it's it's going to be such a great time. We have the Asylum Ball. We have First Mania. We're hosting the, um, we're trying to break the record for the world's largest fake funeral for Lucky Stiff, I believe is his name, at our Hearst Mania this year. So that's that's a cool event. There's a lot of um, classic hearses that come out, decorated hearses. Um, it's just a good time. We've got our haunted house going. Um, Fall Fest is an, it's a really family-friendly, fun event. Um, we've got all kinds of amazing stuff um, starting the third weekend, or I'm sorry, the fourth weekend in uh, September is when it'll really start picking up. But we do start on the 21st of September, and we will go till the first weekend of November. And, you know, we, we like to see lots of new faces as we run three different flashlight tours, which are mini tours. They're about they're 30 minutes each. You get 
half paranormal, half history. You get to see a couple places you don't normally get to see. Um, we've got a little bit of something for everybody. Um, and the most important part is we're educating people. We're teaching people, you know, if you don't learn from your past, you're doomed to repeat it. You know, we have a lot of fun. We, like I said, we do run our haunted house and stuff like that. But for us, the main thing is educating people, keeping the property alive, which we do that by our guests coming in. All the funding goes right back into the buildings because um, it's it's a lot to maintain. And like I said, we have a phenomenal maintenance crew that work year round um, maintenance and paranormal. And then our office, we're the ones that are working year round, you know, to to keep people coming in and trying to keep everything going. And and daytime makes up for it during the, the you know busy months for them. They do every bit, bring in every bit as many, if not more than what we do on the nights. Um it's, it's a huge team effort, and but we none of us could do what we do without the public showing interest and, you know, wanting to come and take these tours, do all these events. And, and like I said, it's them that keep the property alive. I love that. I love your passion about it. I, t I hope I come to West Virginia and get to meet you in person. That would be amazing. I would love that. <laughs> okay. How do people get information? The website is what? Um, www tala t-a-l-a-w-v.com talawv.com and the instagram they can just google is it instagram or facebook that you guys are on um we're definitely on facebook i believe we might have an instagram now and it should be linked to our facebook if we do okay excellent thank you so much for your time brandy i know it was i changed the date on you and everything and i know how busy you're going to be in just i don't know 10 days 15 days you're going to be back-to-back -to -back tours. So I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you doing this with me. I appreciate you wanting to talk to me and, and having us on and, you know, helping us. Like I said, it's thanks to you guys showing interest too, that gets the word out for us. So it's a team that. effort. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. By preserving the history of places like Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, we ensure that the stories of the individuals who lived within its walls their struggles, and the medical practices employed during different eras are not forgotten. This preservation fosters empathy and educates future generations about the significance of mental health reform and serves as a cautionary tale, encouraging ongoing advancements in compassionate and effective mental health care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. We love hearing from you, so be sure to like, follow, and comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to all your favorites. Visit our website at hauntinghistorypodcast.com for more information on each episode, links to our Patreon page, and all of our social media platforms. Until next time, I'm Kat. I'm Haley. Remember, the living are far scarier than any time.